It's time for Supply Chain Now Radio, broadcasting live from the supply chain capital of the country, Atlanta, Georgia. Supply Chain Now Radio spotlights the best in all things supply chain. The people, the technologies, the best practices, and the critical issues of the day. And now, here are your hosts. Hey, Scott Luton here live with you on Supply Chain Now Radio. Welcome back to the show. So in this episode, we are continuing our Vetlana Voice podcast series where we get to focus on the veteran community, news, insights, challenges, resources, oftentimes with just a hint of supply chain. Uh, and mostly we conduct the series because we're passionate about serving our, our fellow uh, veteran community. Uh, it's part of our give back, and we hope that you, our audience, enjoys it as much as we do. So today, our show is uh, incredibly honored to be featuring Mr. David Bellavia, a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, if you don't, if you aren't familiar with this incredible honor, it's the rarest, most distinguished military honor in the United States. There's been only 3,508 individuals to receive the honor since the first recipient in 1863. So you're going to want to stay tuned for what promises to be an inspiring and invigorating conversation with a lot of uh, observations on leadership and effective, successful leadership. So stay tuned. Quick programming note, like all of our series on Supply Chain Now Radio, you can find our replays on a wide variety of channels, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever else you get your podcasts from. As always, we'd love to have you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Uh, let's quickly thank some of our sponsors that allow us to bring these conversations and, and innovative ideas to you, our audience. Verison, the effective syndicate, spin management experts, talent stream, and many more. Check out our sponsors on the show notes of this episode. All right, so let's welcome in my fearless co-host once again today, Lloyd Knight, Director of International Air Freight LMG at UPS Global Forwarding, also co-founder and president of Vetlanta. Lloyd, how you doing? Great, Scott. It's uh, wonderful to be here. We just you know, finished up our last quarter of the decade, mm. uh, our summit, which, which is crazy to think about. And we're really pumped to mm. uh, have David on today's episode. You know, that is, um, I'm with you. Last night was outstanding. We had a chance to see uh, David in action, you know, keynoting our, uh, the, the summit. Uh, it was great to have a sneak peek. And we've done a lot of, you know, you go on YouTube. There's thousands of videos featuring his story, his, his, his perspectives, and getting a sense of who he is and the sacrifices that he and his, his, his comrades made. Um, so we're really we're honored to have uh, him in the studio here today. So let's welcome in uh, Mr. David Bellavia. Welcome to Atlanta and welcome to the uh, Supply Chain Radio. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate your hospitality of Atlanta. It was a great experience, and uh, I got to see guys I haven't seen in almost 20 years. Mm. There's locally based you know, my, my first squad leader mm. was just showed up, and it was really cool to be able to see uh, Sergeant Chassin again and uh, Specialist Gwim, another guy I served with in, in uh, uh, Germany. And then I had my buddies from Benning come uh, that were in with me in Fallujah. So mm. it was it was kind of neat to not only be at Vetlana, see all these great vets, uh, learn about Georgia and the National Guard and, and all the vets and all the different companies out here supporting veterans in, in the Atlanta area, but also guys that I am I know and I love that are right here mm. living in Atlanta, so mm. pretty cool. 
Well, and, and to paint a picture for our, our listening audience, we're there in, in a hangar, large hangar out at uh, uh, Dobbins Air Reserve Base. Yeah, in Clayton National Guard Center. Clayton National Guard Center, that's right. And as uh, David comes on the stage, one of the first things he does is recognize a bunch of your uh, colleagues that, as you mentioned, you hadn't seen in a long time. Right. And and made him he made him stand up there, and and uh, it was just a, it was a special. It was one one of my favorite aspects of your message last night because you know you you seemed like you're always putting it back putting the honor and the recognition and you know um back on your 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 teammates and your colleagues and your your brothers and sisters in arms that's how we're raised uh in the infantry you know you're the last to eat when you get a little bit of rank you know and uh you're you're always reminding people that you are nothing Mm. uh without uh you know the people to your left and right they're Mm. the reason why you're here and and you know, only an exquisite idiot would uh, <laughs> would take that and, and say, "Hey, this is all me." You know, let, let's celebrate me. Right. You know, enough's enough. You know, so it's pretty cool. Well, all right. So, Lloyd, we want to pose the question to David that we typically we ask a lot of folks this, and, yeah. and we see so many different answers and so many different reasons. But why did you choose to join the military? I had a pretty crazy experience happen. I was co- I was home from college and. My mom had uh, pretty serious neck surgery, so my dad was uh, my dad was a dentist for 37 years. Mm. I'm, I'm the youngest of four, and he was taking care of my mom. And uh, I, these two guys broke into our house, mm. and it was a home invasion, and uh, they were just having their way, ripping everything apart. Mm. And uh, I remember I went down the basement. I, I grabbed uh, a Remington uh, 800 and. I loaded it, I had it ready, and I I got them right, you know, well within rights to just, uh, you know, defend my, my parents, defend our property. I couldn't do it. Yep. I couldn't do it. And and the look on these guys' faces, they, they just weren't, you know, they went about their business. Uh, but, the, but my father looked at me in a really, you know, just a, a way that just made me feel like I needed to, I needed to go somewhere and... Mm. And, and and become a man and uh i was you know done with college and i i should have already been i was the youngest and maybe i just wasn't ready so i went to the university of fort benning georgia and got a master's degree in in human studies and and uh i i just was like hey you know it, this was 99 yeah. you know there was no war going on kosovo was kind of a joke deployment and by the time september 11th came around I was all in, mm. and uh, that person that was in that house that day was long gone, mm. and and I learned just from great, outstanding NCOs and and officers about what my role is in this world and who I'm supposed to be, and uh, I embraced it, I loved it, and uh, you know it really changed the tra- tra- the trajectory of my mm. life. Yeah, yeah, I bet. You know, we always get diverse answers. That is a diverse answer. Mm. Uh, that's pretty answer. crazy. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about transition stories. You know, we in our uh, before we went on the air, we were talking about transition stories, and 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 again, uh, lots of diversity. Everybody has a very unique. Uh, so let me ask you this: uh, so, you know, your your career was going really well, <laughs> and a uh, it, it's it sounds like you really uh, like the army. Why, as a staff sergeant, did you decide to leave the army after yeah, six years in in two thousand five? Well, you know, my whole uh, – so my son was born uh, with some kidney issues. Mm. 
and you know we had uh, Buffalo Children's Hospital, which was a world class facility for pediatric nephrology. Uh, the Army didn't really have a whole lot of options uh, outside of Walter Reed to to handle that. So I, I would have had to have given up my MOS mm-hmm. uh, and moved to basically Walter Reed, or just get out of the Army. Um, I didn't want to do any of those things. September 11th happened. I wanted to serve. I wanted to fight. And so the army was like, you're going to have to go on what's called an all others tour, which no family, no dependents. And that was three years without family. So uh, that was really tough. And it was pretty much an ultimatum, uh, which was, you know, you know, this, this is, I was, I was going to lose my family, Mm. you know? So I, I decided to, to, to come home and and be a a father. Uh, And, you know, there's times you look it back and you think, you know, so much of a, a soldier's career is really dictated by at what's at home. And if you have that support, you're blessed. If you don't have that support, you know, you're, you're, you know, that's one of the reasons why divorce is such a huge deal. Mm. So um, it's the, really the biggest casualty of the war is is marriage. Yep. Mm. You know, people just it's just not, uh, you know, it's these young guys, you know, 19 years old, you've got an income, Right. And you've got money for the first time in your life. You're living away from home. You don't have to worry about rent. You you want to just hit the fast forward button on adulthood. Mm. And then you go into combat. And, and now there's this artificial sense of, you know, you're thinking a 20 year old doesn't think about the mortality. Not at all. You know, and so now all of these things are going on and you're thinking, I'm, you know, I've got to get everything accomplished because I don't know what's going to happen in six months. Let's get married. Let's have a kid. Carnation instant life. <laughs> you know, you, you just add water and, and all of a sudden. You're like, I'm 21. I've got two kids. I'm married. What am I doing? You know what I mean? Like, this is, I'm not ready for any of this. So a lot of those decisions are made because of the great unknown of the combat experience. And then when you come home, you're now back in reality. And a lot of those things just kind of implode because of that. So when, when I, I didn't, you know, at the time that we were coming home, the Iraq war was super unpopular. Mm. And, you know, asking for help or asking for a job, what networking, none of these things. There was no transition. Uh, oh, yeah. There, yeah the Army yeah, basically, yeah, the, the yeah. Army would set you up for unemployment yeah. is mm-hmm. what they did. You know, when you got out, it's like, here's how you f- file for unemployment and good luck finding a job. There wasn't really anything there. Today, today's Army, completely different. Yeah. You know, they're putting these guys on job interviews and internships and Fortune 500 companies are hiring folks. Uh, we've done a much, much better job of taking care of Joe. So yeah, definitely, and and definitely here in Atlanta as well. And something that Atlanta is is really a uh, you know focused on helping uh, veterans and their spouses with mm-hmm. the transition. Mm-hmm. So so take us through uh, what do you do after the army, and what have you done between the time you separated from the army until earlier this year when you found out you were being awarded the medal. So when I got home, uh, I literally didn't have any idea. My my dad sat me down with a local Vietnam uh, helicopter pilot who is a very decorated guy, and he was a politician at the time. And so I sat down with him, and he just, you know, basically just gave me, like, you know, advice like you would give any, you know, young soldier coming home. Um, I I was super into politics, and this guy, John Murtha, in Pennsylvania— 
was running around and he, he was, you know, using his Bronze Star from Vietnam as his credibility, talking about my war. So I drove to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, the mm. 12th district of Pennsylvania in my Taurus. I had $300. <laughs> uh, I went to his office and I just wanted to talk to him, mm. you know. And so I waited and I finally got, you know, maybe 10 minutes with him. And I, I was respectful. I just said, I don't understand what you're doing here, you know. And he said, you know, very. he was really cool to me, but he just said, this is what I believe. If you don't like it, go start a group and mm. and go, you know, talk about your point of view. And I was like, sure, why not? So I went home. I wrote an op-ed. And Tony Snow had a radio show at the time. Mm-hmm. He read the op-ed on air. Rush Limbaugh read the op-ed on air. And... uh Tony Snow became the White House communications, oh, that's uh, okay. the, the, the hey. press secretary. So all of a sudden, I went from just a guy writing an op-ed to, you know, all these people that were reading this op-ed, and I started meeting all these vets that were, you know, doing the same thing, and five of us got together and said, let's start a group where we just take the politics out of warfare. Mm. Let's see what happens. Within... You know, three months, we've got 185,000 active duty members. And within, you know, two years, we spent more money in the presidential campaign than any other special interest group uh, with McCain and Obama. And had the war just been the primary focus, you know, it would have been a different outcome. But of course, the economy went in the tank in September of that year. But we went from just a bunch of guys that were, you know, not even you know, couldn't get our sideburns even, and we're just home from the war, to literally going on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. You know, Pete Hegseth, uh, who was on Fox, he was a part of that group. A guy named Jim Hansen, who's now one of the the biggest military uh, uh, consultants on Fox News, he was a part of that group. Uh, Latrell, Marcus Latrell was a part of that. Uh, We had uh, uh, Chris Kyle was uh, helping us out with a bunch of other stuff. But this is before, you know, these guys had books and before they had you know the the reputation grassroots all the way yeah yeah so we were just a bunch of guys just all getting together um and you know we just got on a bus and just started going from town to town saying are we wrong who's with us and Mm. it was a huge we we brought 500 veterans on capitol hill and sat down with all of our elected officials at that time in 2006 they were going to defund the war right now listen you could be for the war, against the war, but you can't defund it, while we're fighting. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. absurd. Yeah. So we saw the the Iraq war was a political soccer ball, and we just wanted to say, take the politics out of combat, and that started. And then, of course, you know, the uh, the president, uh, the, the, a new administration came in. Iraq was, don't talk about it. Mm. It's the bad war. It's the war of choice. It's the war based on bad intel. So everything was Afghanistan. So Iraq vets were like... We don't have anything. We're just, we just, this was a huge mistake and forget about it. Move on with your life. So I I went and uh, I got a job at a milk plant and I just started working there. Uh, I did some, some, you know, charity work and worked with a power grid for a while and and trying to protect our power grid. Uh, But I had vets groups and other charities and I just kind of got done with Washington. I lived out there for a couple of years and it was just like, I want to go back to Buffalo. I want to just have a normal job get a coffee get a newspaper you know what <laughs> right, i mean yeah. just just and i did that for 10 years great company uh they they did basically dairy uh, aseptic dairy manufacturing which is like shelf stable dairy mm. awesome to see manufacturing 
um, you know, it's like how it's made every single right. day. You know, it was like one of the coolest <laughs> things in the world. And uh, just how much is involved in that. And honestly, it brought me back to the Army because, you know, one person screws up. The line stops. The mm. line stops. You're losing money. This factory was w- working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it required everyone to do their job, everyone to be a, an expert at what they did. And I just loved it. Mm. I thought it was a great. I, if I could have spent the rest of my life just on that floor <laughs> with my hairnet on, you know, and, and my, you know, gloves just walking around, just seeing mm. everyone as a team. I, I, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Now, you know, I heard this and I don't know if it's a true story, but a, uh, I, I hear some of your coworkers were absolutely shocked. Yeah, at that job that when you uh, were nominated for the medal, they had no idea. That, that well, true story? Well, <laughs> here's the thing. I got a ton of attention because at the time that this happened, I, there was a New York, I'm sure, the Time Magazine, the Yasser Arafat died, and that was the cover story during Fallujah in 2004. This story that Michael Ware wrote, was so powerful mm. it won i think a pulitzer mm. uh and so they changed the cover of time magazine to be fallujah mm. so there was a tremendous amount of attention at the time you know on that thing i was nominated for the medal of honor i was nominated for the distinguished service cross i received the silver star and our unit got a tremendous amount of well mm. my unit deserved the attention they did outstanding things we all did mm. um and so did the Marines and everyone else in Fallujah. So when I came home, it was like, it was Vets for Freedom. It was the politics of it. But then it was kind of like, you know, there's really what you're known for being maybe a vet. But then it became like politics and mm. other things mm. that people. So when the book came out, uh, it was just kind of, you know, people forgot about it. I went back. I embedded as a reporter. Uh, I did two tours as an embedded reporter after I was in Iraq. And it never i never told anyone i served because i thought that that would be you know i, I don't want to you know taint the jury wow. pool yeah. you know what i mean so i i was used to just using it when i had to use it yeah. i think a lot of people make the mistake of coming home and keeping the high and tight low crawling to work reminding people i mean you, you could look at someone's car and see their dd214 <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. they have you know jump school and you know everything on there when you do that you sometimes are are telling your coworkers this is what I am and this is who mm. I am. Mm. And so after 15 years, I, I just didn't talk about it anymore. Mm. And, and I just wanted to be a civilian. And so when the story came out, it, it people were like, wait, is, how is this even possible? This guy has your name. Mm. You know, like he looks just like you. Why, why well, is this? So let's 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 for our listeners sake. I want to back up into that story. It was a Pulitzer Prize or a very well-received story. Um, so for our listeners that may not be familiar with David's uh, Medal of Honor story, his actions in Fallujah were first documented in the November 22, 2004 Time Magazine cover story, Into the Hot Zone, by journalist Michael Ware, who was attached with your unit, David, during the, the fight, I believe, right? Right. Partial video capturing the event can be seen in Michael Ware's documentary, uh, Only the Dead. And I think some of that is also featured in some of the YouTube videos that, that, that we did our homework on and, right. and the one that played last night. So I want to quote that Time Magazine article because I think it really, the, the paragraph we've selected here really kind of paints a, a, a picture. So it reads, quote, uh, Bellavia, a wiry 29-year-old who resembles Sean Penn, is pacing the street, preparing to go back in. Bellavia's bluster on the battlefield contrasts with his refinement off of the battlefield. During lulls in the fighting, he could discuss the Renaissance and East European politics 
Uh, get on me now, he's quoted as saying, ordering a squad to close in. There is little movement. He asks, who has more ammunition? Two, soldier, uh, two soldiers stand up and join him in the street. Here we go to Charlie's Angels, Bellavia says. You don't move from my blank wing. You stay on my right shoulder. You stay on my left shoulder. Huh. That's end, right. End quote. Hmm. What, um, so, you know, when I read that 17 times now, even though I stumbled through it, um, my mind processes a lot of things, right? And you can, I can just almost see it. Of course, the videos we watched really helps it, but it just screams leadership, right? And it screams leadership in a way that it's not lip service leadership we've talked about. It is action-oriented, and it is successful because folks are acting, right? As the unit comes together, everyone's moving together, and that's got to start with the leader that's got the direction. So who taught you how to be a leader going into not just that fight but really into battle in general? I mean, there's so many to uh, to throw out there, but, I mean, I, my Sergeant Major Stephen Falkenberg – He's the first guy to uh, lose his life in the Battle of Fallujah, and he was basically leading a bunch of Iraqi intervention forces. He had no business doing that. Mm. They were just lollygagging around. He saw them. They were taking heavy casualties, and he took it upon himself to basically say, follow me. Here's what we're going to do, and he went out into the the great unknown and was taken down, Uh, and... I just everyone in two two infantry in my unit were leaders that led from the front. My company commander Sean Sims is killed in a house fight. Mm. Uh, my XO is killed uh, at close quarter range with a rocket. Uh, we lost a scout. We lost other guys. But when your leaders are, you know, people don't understand that close quarter combat is so intimate. Mm. It's you're not just like oh you. It was so rare to see the enemy. You get shot at, and you get an opportunity. You get a target ID. You take it down. Those days were so few and far between. This is the beginning of the IED, and 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 you know the the loss of life was. You get in a Humvee, you're driving around, and mm. boom, everything's gone. Um, this was a completely different fight. You're making eye contact. In this case, we're actually talking to these guys, trying to intimidate them. Mm. They're doing the same to us. The, the the battle injuries that you would are accustomed to, the fragging, the bullets, the grazes, the shrapnel are replaced with, you know, literally guys, you know, trying to kill you with their hands. And it's very personal. It's very intimate. Mm. Uh, and you just think to those people that got you ready for that fight, you know, Doug Walter, my company commander, Sean Sims, uh, who replaced him and lost his life, uh, Stephen Falkenberg. These were uh, Darren Bond, who one of the, you know, was almost Sergeant Major of the Army. I mean, these these guys that all came from Fallujah went on to become incredible leaders in the Army at the highest levels because what they showed in Fallujah is that they are some of the greatest minds in our military at the time, and it just happens to be from you know my group i mean mm. i you know my my battalion commander went on my my brigade commander put three stars on um. you know so these guys all graduated to the highest echelons and i got to see them in the moment in the fight and every single one of them led by example it's really hard not to you know do your part when you when you have outstanding leaders that are are doing it every day mm. So the first thing is you don't look nothing like Sean Penn. No, no, that was ridiculous. <laughs> but <laughs> you're, yeah. you're much better looking well, than he was then you. and now. Well, thank you. I appreciate so, it. So, yeah, so uh, take us back. So it, it's it's hitting the fan. Yeah. So the uh, take us back to your mindset when when you make the decision to go into that building. So in my life, I've always had whenever adversity hits, I I take about 
90 seconds to lose my mind, right? So for the first 90 seconds, no one's screaming louder than I am. No one's going, no one's more irrational than I am. I just, you know, I'm lost. I can't find my keys. You know, whatever it is, I, I take 90 seconds to just be, you know, get it out. Just let it out, let it go. And then you start to, to look at, you know, one of the things I learned very early is that everyone's always watching you. When you're in charge, everyone's looking at you. And, and if, you know, if something happens right now while we're talking and, and there's 50 people up here, if one person jumps through the window, inevitably like seven people are going to follow that just because that seems like a good idea. Someone has a plan. And, and to me, the only unforgivable sin is not having a plan, mm-hmm. not making a decision is worse than making a poor decision. I could fix a poor decision. I could fix a coward. You know, you know, I'm afraid. Well, then get out. Go away. I don't need you. But if I don't know if you're a coward, if I don't know that you can make sound decisions, the lack of decisions, that is the unforgivable sin. So when you're, you know, in a, when you have an enemy that's bunkered and, and down and you've got, you know, Bradley's, you can't get a bomb. I mean, the chaotic situation of Fallujah is every single street has its own mini battle of Gettysburg going on. So the Air Force can only drop so many bombs. Mm-hmm. If you're getting indirect fire, there's no fixed wing coming in because the indirect can't, you know, impact while while planes are in the air. So everyone is on a waiting list. You're like at a big doctor's office wow. and everyone gets a number. And if your firefight is still going on when you get the number, you get the bomb. But unfortunately, a lot of times you got the number after the fight was over or after you're pulling out. So we put in for a bomb and we were in line. And so it's it's going to take... So to our audience that, that, that may not, or most of our audience that never been in that situation, when you say put it in for a bomb, you're talking communicating back to... To our, yeah, we, we're asking for fire support. We're asking for a 1,000-pound a, a JDAM, Joint Direct Laser Guided Bomb, to take this house out mm. so that we don't have to, you know, risk any more casualties. Mm. Um, but it was just, you know, okay, we'll get there when we get there. Mm. Uh, and that just seemed like it went on forever. So we brought in our Bradley fighting vehicles, which are basically... You know, 25 millimeter cannon. It's a it's a tank that has troops in the back, and the walls were so high, the streets were so narrow that we were we were basically forcing them back in. The more we fired, they were just kind of, you know, it was obvious that there was still people in there, but you don't really have a situation. But the problem with the Bradley is it's so effective that it like destroyed all the plumbing inside. So now you know you've got water that's pretty deep and it and it's you know the the population was gone for six months so uh men women you know children people that didn't want to fight all left 99 percent of those guys were you know foreigners that wanted to fight americans but the smell of water that has been you know just unmolested for six months Mm -hmm. not used it's horrible it's like fish the worst smell in the world and the only sense that you could really use is your sense of smell. You, you can't trust your eyes. You're tired. Um, you're exhausted. You're hungry. You haven't had, you know, sleep. Um, and people are starting to get sick, you know. So we're starting to get guys with some infections and bacteria and whatnot. Your ears are shot because of all the shooting at close mm. quarters. So the, really the only thing you could do is smell. And you, you could okay. smell if a guy slept in a house. You could smell his breath. You could smell his body odor. And you knew that he used that house for a restroom. Um I remember 
going into it. Now, we bombed the hell out of Fallujah, right? It was just like Normandy. Everyone got a map. Everyone memorized how they were going into the city weeks ahead. And then you got to Fallujah and realized, wait a minute, that, that block isn't even there anymore. The Air Force and the artillery, have, mm. you know, where, where is this? <laughs> this map is from Halloween. This is November 7, and nothing looks the same. Mm. Everything's gone. And these roads, they showed us a video of an Air Force F-16 Charlie dropping a bomb, and it set off like 30 other bombs. The, the one bomb set off 30 IEDs. So it was apparent that you were not using the main roads. So the only way we were going to take this city down was by creating our own path, and that was through buildings and you know, blow, having tanks shoot into buildings, multiple buildings, entering and clearing through there, creating alternative avenues for our vehicles to support us and that's a lot of stress to put on young leadership and then you've got mm. people dying and 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 uh, you know people moving up in rank because of of of, of uh you know attrition mm. but i remember going into a house and just seeing dust everywhere like the, these families just left in the middle of the night there would be clothing and toys and rotting food mm. and you're smelling all this stuff and the dogs had not been fed in a city mm. the size of tampa bay florida cool. So these dogs were literally, not to get too graphic, but the dogs were depending on us to take the enemy out mm. so they could feed. Yep. And it was one of the creepiest things in the world to see feral dogs just waiting as your vehicles rolled in. Wow. And they would just kind of move behind you. You'd get in a firefight, and then the dogs would just, boom, go right into the houses, and you would hear... The I mean it was mm. it was extremely disturbing, mm. but going into a house with dust and debris and everything over and seeing like a pristine orange cup, or a piece of cheese, everything else is rotted and nasty, and you just focus on that orange cup and everything in your body you become an animal. You're now instinctual. There's nothing about anything other than cup, threat. Where is it? You know, it's got to be behind a curtain. It's got to be behind the couch. It's anywhere a person can hide. That's where I'm putting around. And you're not making that decision. A 19-year-old kid's making Everyone's making the same thing. Like, what is that? Everyone's now just spider sense. And you can do that. Your adrenaline is pumping. But it's like every single house. And it's impossible to keep up that adrenaline. It's, it's exhausting. Mm. And when we walked into this house, we were complacent. Because we had been going through every single uh, back and forth. And, and the other thing is that Michael Ware, unbeknownst to us, he's videotaping everything. So what you're watching is the actual firefight. It's, you know, I've, uh, you know the Army, and they, there's not a Medal of Honor that we know of, a citation that is actually videotaped in real time. And Michael Ware did it. And honestly, I don't know anything about the process because it's super secret, but... I don't know if this is ever happening if Michael Ware isn't there. Yeah. So, so he. This deserves... is just some Australian guy with a video camera, right? He's more than that. <laughs> he, he, well, he's really like the Ernie Pyle of his generation. Yeah. I mean, he, he really, he dedicated eight years of his life to Iraq. Wow, eight years. And, no, eight. He, this guy yeah. has been completely affected by yeah. that too. And you know, now that I get to know him as you know a guy, a man. Yeah. He's one of the toughest guys I've ever met in my life. Wow. I mean, he, he is just absolutely, he's opinionated, mm. he's strong, but he's a decent and honorable man. Mm. He had many opportunities where he could have sold a story that would have been sexy or, you know, whatever. But he's, he's one of the most decent people I've ever met. Mm. Very honest, 
Um, and he risked his life to get to a story. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it, the reason why my guys are able to sit, tell their families what they did is because of Michael. Wow. Wayne. That's, that's yeah. awesome to hear. So, so let's talk more about that. Let's, let's talk about, uh, David, what did Michael Ware and Tom get right in the article and the movie? And then is there anything else that, um, I mean, it sounds like he really nailed the story and nailed the scene and nailed what was taking place, but Anything else that um, is important, do you think, for our listeners to really understand in terms of what was going on that may not have been ca- captured? By- well, the thing about being in a firefight is that I don't know what the story is because mm. I'm only looking down my, my rifle. You know what I mean? I remember what happened. I remember what I was thinking. I remember what my guys were doing. But really, there's only one person that could tell the story, and that's the guy who's looking at everything. Mm. And he was looking at everything. So I, I have no way to know. Uh, you know, who said what, who did what, you know, that's what happened. Now, the videotape makes it a lot easier mm-hmm. because it's all there um, and the audio is all there. Uh, but for the most part, th- there's really nothing that mm. I I look at and I and I think, well, that's, you know, it, it, it's so raw. Mm. It's so that it's so in the moment that it's almost, you know. I want to go back to something that you that you said earlier in the interview as we're talking about the scene and what's taking place. Um, this notion of hand-to-hand combat. I remember uh, Saving Private Ryan. There's lots of scenes that really get your attention in that movie. Mm. Uh, there's one in particular where um, there are some Army soldiers in, uh, I'm not sure where they were, but in, it was urban warfare, right, in buildings. Right. And a, a German uh, soldier in this scene goes up, and, and all he has is a knife, and it becomes hand-to-hand. And then as, as um, the American soldier is losing... That that combat, as he's using the knife to take his life, it becomes deeply. It changes the whole. It, it moves from from um, combat and 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 um, uh, testosterone it, to someone dying and someone killing, and it's eyeball to eyeball. So when I hear it, when, immediately as you were describing that situation, where at times of of, of what you experienced and what you were going through became hand to hand. That's the first thing that came to mind because that, that that is I think a lot of folks that are in war don't get that, especially in the types of battles that that you and your your fellow soldiers are going through. You know, I, I never had uh, when I think of that night, I I don't think of it as um, it's it. First of all, it's pitch black, mm. and then you know I threw a frag, so there was a lot of smoke. The entire house was rigged to blow up, and it wasn't a matter of you know why don't you try this or why don't you try that? It was, this house is going to blow up at any minute. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if my frag just set off a peristaltic chain of, of propane tanks and C4 going off. If I shoot around and it goes the wrong way, mm-hmm. is that going to blow up uh, You know the house? So it was a matter of, you've got to find the person. You know, and, and most of these guys were shot repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So you know they're wounded, you know they're suffering. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, a wounded man is a dog fighting mm. for its life. Mm. It, it, there's no, it, it's it's everything is instinct and everything is you know just because you're hit doesn't mean you're not a threat anymore mm. and it doesn't mean you're you're gonna. So so it was it was I it was fixing this enemy, and the only reason why it it devolved into that was because there was a person above us that mm. was communicating with him. Mm. So I was just trying to shut up this guy from yelling to his friends mm. so i could yell to my friends mm. and you know it just kind of uh i was just trying to pacify him in any way i could and mm. and i used literally every 
thing that I had. And uh, but at the the weird part is is that like I didn't know how many I knew there was a, a two to three guys in that house. But the crazy part was that you're engaging people, and you're thinking, "Am I missing?" Like I thought I shot this guy mm. like five times. Why is he not bleeding? Why is he not hit? And you're like, "Oh my god, is that another guy?" And then you're like, "Wait a minute, there can't be another guy." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, how many guys? Are, why are they all wearing the same thing? You know, like they they all are coming through the same door, and it's like you know, the, in Hollywood, you shoot a guy, he falls down, he's right, dead. Right. In the real world. You shoot a guy and he crawls away and tries to get better and tries to get help and tries to. And so they're giving away uh, my position. And, you know, you're looking for where was the guy I just dropped here Mm. and why is he still on his feet? Mm. And then, of course, you find the spoons and the needles and all the drugs these guys are taking, which honestly, if I was fighting against the United States Army First Infantry, I'd probably be high, too, (laughs) you know. But these guys were, were just high to Neptune, so mm. they're not acting like normal folks. They're 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 you know popping themselves with whatever they could, and when you're shooting at close proximity with our you know five five six, it's not the best round for stopping power. It's not the best round to you know drop someone in their tracks. And, and five five six is a mil, mil, the, five point six millimeter. Yeah. that's right. So it's a, it's a basically a twenty two. Uh, but it's an armor piercing, so it goes super, super fast. It's not like the Vietnam round that, that tumbled, mm. right? This thing is made for the enemy to wear some sort of Kevlar protection, so it'll pierce through that. But what if you're not wearing that and you're just wearing you know, a T-shirt, it's going to basically cauterize. It's going to just zoom past you real quick. So you you almost have to aim for things that are going to stop a mm. person, yep. right? And that just kind of changes the fight a little bit. But my point is it's, it's the whole fight, every close quarter battle. And my unit got into a ridiculous amount of these. This happens to be in a magazine and videotape, but it certainly wasn't the worst day we had in Fallujah. Mm. But the reality is, is that when, when that happens, the, these fights could change on the littlest thing. Your confidence goes from like, I'm Thor. No one can stop me. To I should have gone to dental school. This was the worst mistake ever. You know what I mean? Like you go from thinking I've dominated, I'm dominating this room, I've got this under control, because there's only two guys in here. To oh my god, there's four. Oh, there's five. There's six. I don't know what I'm doing. This is just a horrible idea. And you slip and fall, and they have the advantage. And it's just constant ebbs and flows of overconfident mm. to totally insecure. And it, it's a pretty psychologically debilitating thing. Mm. Well, that brings us mm. definitely into the next question. Mm. And, the, uh, you know, I watched the video, and then you definitely have helped set the stage for this next question. How are you able to control both the fear and the stress, not only in yourself, but in the troops you're leading? Well, you know, the the, the real point here is that you you know their face is showing you what they're going through and you 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 are doing your best to not reflect that on your own face you know so i think you're in a much better it's easier to fake it when you're the guy in charge yeah because all you have to do is start giving directions this subordinate is the one that has to follow that and you know it's a really dumb idea or it's a great idea but it's an idea they have to you know, follow. So my job is much easier than their job. Um, but it was a matter of, uh, 
you know, I, 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 all I could think of was just, you know, you, you try to amp yourself up for it and you try to get people going. Scott Lawson was a guy that went in that house with me mm. and, you know, just showed me a tremendous amount of fidelity. I, you know, whatever you want to do, I'm with you. And I, at to that point in my life, I've never had that where a guy just said, you know, he basically, Scott Lawson told me, I'm not going to let you die alone. Which A was like, well, thanks. You know what I mean? I thought we could do this. You know what I mean? What do you mean? And then the, the, the second thing, I, Scott died in 2013, and he was a dear friend. I love, love him to this day. Um, but, I mean, the idea that someone's going to say, I have no doubt we're going to get killed. Yeah. But I'm going to do it with you. That was enough to be like, let's roll the dice and let's mm. see what happens, you know? And uh, I'm just really blessed to have soldiers that that – were willing to go with me and, and, mm. and they did it. And, you know, again, we focus on the MOH, we focus on the actions of one person, but there were so many things that happened that night and five, you know, the night, the next day, the day before these guys saved my life. Yep. They saved my life repeatedly. Um, you know, so one day, one action and on my birthday gets all this attention. But the reality is that, you know, Fitzy and nap, my team leader, we walked into a building with a MIG drop tank in it thing was wired to blow this thing would have blown us to neptune mm. and i gave nap i said take that house down he's like absolutely not don't go in there and the house was rigged to blow saved our entire platoon had he not done i would have brought everyone in there mm. um that house would have killed us all you know a guy that opens a door and looks around and sees a grenade on the handle you know reaches around pulls the grenade out i mean every one of those you know crushed wire they just put two wire on a carpet yeah. There's no carpet in the entire building, but one welcome mat. You put one step, one foot on that carpet, those two wires crush together, and now you have, you know, a, a, a charge, and you, you blow up the entire house. Wow. These guys were constantly making decisions like that that saved lives, and it, it's just it's what makes the, the award so awkward because it's like, oh, you must have been the only person that did. No, I was one of 50 guys that did mm. it every day. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, this meteor hit stars me. aligned mm. to you. Yeah. So mm. one of the things I really appreciated in your speech last night, you, you talked about how you're now able to express your love. Yeah. The, 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 your fellow veterans. And I mean, that, that's, that's one great thing about a uh, Vetlanta. And you know the uh, the 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 look at mm. Scott and go, man, I, I love you, dude. <laughs> what you're doing, I love you and, and mean it. Yeah. So mm. I, that's really special. And and a, uh, like I said, that that didn't happen overnight. That 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 took time. Well, you you realize that, you know. I mean, we we talk about we love to hear the stories of what happens when we meet the enemy face to face and we take them out, right? But how many? You know, millions of Americans in Afghanistan and Iraq are stacked up and they go into a house. And there's nothing there. Well, they were prepared for something to be there. If there was a guy on the other side of that door, they would have taken him out. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's to me, it's not the act of actually executing what you're trained to do. It's the willingness to want to do it. You know, it's the willingness to be in that stack to mm. get out and say, I am ready to go into this house. And whenever on the other side of that door, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to shoot it in the face. Yeah. That's takes a lot of intestinal fortitude oh, to do goodness. and yet all we do is we focus on the guys who actually are successful mm. doing that but how many people are willing to do it and yeah. you know my guys came into that house thinking i was dead mm. 
and they fought their way to my body to bring my body home. They didn't know I was alive, and wow. that I just I love them for the fact that they were willing to do that for okay. me. And yeah, so we'll ask you. I want to ask you in just a second about the logistics of combat. But going back to one of the things you mentioned, you talk about the highs and lows of, of confident swings, and I think there's so many transferable. Um, uh, insights you're sharing that are easily transferable to business situations. You know, leaders lose confidence and gain confidence like you were describing pretty regularly, right? Whether you're an outstanding leader or if you're a newer leader or what have you. What advice would you have uh, for folks in the business world that struggle with maintaining that high degree of confidence so you can go out and make things happen? Well, the first thing is is that you, you it's all about communication, You've, you've got a constant you, you constantly have to have uh, your subordinates can never find out what's happening before you tell them what's happening. Uh, you certainly want to set expectations for good and bad. Uh, but nine times out of 10, it's, you know, the, the building block of competency is always character. Yep. If you don't have the care, you could be the best at whatever you do. But if you're a jerk, no, no one's going to care to ask how good you are at something. So that that building block of being good at something or being competent always comes down to what kind of person you are. And are you going to be able to be there during the good times, be there during the bad times? Do you share the glory? Do you do you compliment people when they're doing a good job? You know, there's nothing wrong. One of the things that I think a lot of young leaders are afraid of is firing people. You know, you're, do, the best thing you can do for someone is to get them out of a position where they're going to fail. Mm. Failure is not the worst thing in the world. A controlled failure is actually a great educational tool. But if you just know that there are people that can't do their job, then you're not really an effective leader because you're, you're forcing, you're, you're allowing them to be set up for failure when you know for a fact that these are guys that aren't able to, to shoulder the burden. So once you find your team and you believe in your team and you're communicating with your team, you've got to constantly massage those personalities. You find people what they're really good at. You know, nobody wants to be, you know, just a soldier three. You know, no one wants to be the guy in the red shirt that mm. beams down with Captain Kirk. You know, <laughs> you're about to get zapped. You don't have a purpose, right? Yeah. Everyone wants to have a role. What do I do? What is my job? What is my left limit? What is my right limit? I got everything. Trust me to cover everything in this limit. And I think that when, especially in the business world, trusting your subordinates, giving them the ability to make decisions on their own, and then holding them accountable. Uh, but at the same time, you're the you're the guy. You're the person that is going to, you know, be ultimately the buck stops with you. Um, and if if you truly care about the mission and you truly care about success, you're going to put people in the best positions you can. Mm. But you're never going to just you know blame them haphazardly because things go bad. Mm. Uh, you you got to be accountable at all times. Mm. Awesome. Great point. Red shirt, Captain Kirk. I love that. <laughs> Uh, all right. So as as we know that the Vetlanda Voice podcast all about military veteran issues. We this, this is um, a, again a complete honor to have a, a Medal of Honor recipient and and really you and 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 uh, everything you've done in your career here. But Supply Chain Radio is all about end to end supply chain, logistics, transportation, manufacturing. I loved your experiences through the uh, the, the, the the milk plate you talked about. So. Any thoughts that you can share around the logistics of combat? Well, I mean, it, it's such an incredible machine. You know, the, the American military, when they're doing a set play like Fallujah, Ramadi, any of these in Najaf, 
so much is involved. You know, you don't just take a tank and drive it down the street for seven hours, right? You put it on a, <laughs> yeah. a tractor trailer. You, 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 you have to know, you know, believe it or not, it was our, uh, our transportation industry, our, our, you know, UPS FedEx that gave us our GPS tracking systems, our blue force tracker that allows us to see where all of our vehicles are in real time in combat mm. that came from, from, you know, our mm. folks, uh, at, at UPS. So, you know, all of these things of, well, where's my package? Well, where's my infantry? Yeah. You know, where's my tankers? Where are they at? Where are we? Where are they? And, you know, it's not just about taking out the enemy. It's I've got to feed my guys. I've got to get fuel to my guys. I've got to get the sick guys out, the guys that are hurt. And, and I've got to be able to maintain our lethality over time. And and so when granddad was te- my my grandfather was D-Day plus 22. Wow. So. The the Normandy beaches, Omaha, Utah, Juno, Sword, Gold, those were the depots that he entered the fight into. So what was a place where thousands of Americans, Canadians, and British invaded into southern France became the area that they stored all their grenades and all their bullets and everything else. And, you know, when a, when a truck pulls up and, you know, there's a pallet of grenades or a pallet of C4, yeah. it, it, it it's... That is what makes us the most lethal and effective disciplined military in the world is that anything we need is they're going to find a way to get it to you in in the most, you know, asymmetrical way possible. And uh, it's a lot of civilians. It's a lot of, of, of guy, you know, what made us effective in Iraq wasn't so much the 22 year old machine gunner. It was the 64 year old truck driver. Wow. Was you know because I'll tell you those civilian truck drivers drive totally different than our military truck drivers. You know you're not you're not stopping a 65 year old man with a with a semi. He's going to drive right through you. And and uh, a lot of those civilians fixing our equipment, teaching our guys how to do it. That's really what what turned the tide for us uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, the main and, and we were talking last night at, at the Vetlana Summit. The maintainers never get any recognition, not just in the military, but just in in the private sector too. And and you know, as much as we hear about the um, the, the driver challenges in the transportation industry, you know, uh, making sure we've got a, f- a lot of folks that keep those diesel engine engines running right. uh, and all that machinery running that's a huge challenge right and it keeps the military running it keeps the supply chain going so uh i appreciate your comments there um we are gonna you're gonna ask about the moment he got the news right yeah yeah so uh when you got the news that the medal of honor was going to happen yeah, were you expecting it? Was it a surprise? How, how did that? No, the whole thing. Out? Well, first of all, so this has happened 15 years ago, yeah. and I'm living my life. Everything's yeah. great. I never in a million years thought that this was going to happen. So when you get a phone call from the army asking questions, you know, you you're automatically you know I contact an attorney because I I thought you know I'm reading the newspaper. There's people being accused of doing things they didn't do and all this other nonsense. So I was thinking, you know, I'm not answering anything. You know, like, I don't want to talk about this at all. I don't know what your motives are. And when they assured me that it wasn't a negative thing, I I was thinking, you know, this has to be maybe it's a distinguished service cross, which, I mean, is incredible. I mean, the Silver Star is incredible. I I lived my whole life with, you know, this. I was you know, no one, none of these guys got recognition for anything they did. So I was super lucky and fortunate just to be recognized and, and have an art, you know, I, I didn't need that. I was focused on other things and my, that army chapter was locked up and sealed. And when they said a senior member of the DOD wanted to talk to me, 
it was like, you know, all right, the Secretary of the Army, Secretary of Defense, you know, whatever it was, it was going to be cool. But I didn't think, you know, anything big. And then this person was just busy all the time. And, I, and I'm waiting on hold for days. I mean, literally like five days of, of can't do it, can't do it. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't know, man. This, <laughs> that Secretary of the Army is pretty busy. You know? I, don't know, I don't know exactly what he does for a living. But he was a, a really busy man. And then it, one day uh, I got a phone call and um, it was like hold for the President of the United States. And I'm thinking... That is a senior member of the DOD, commander in chief, you know. And I, I honestly, my first five minutes were like, "Is this just a, a you know, call that is just being nice, or what is the deal?" And he just said, "You know, we're going to give you the the Medal of Honor." And I, I mean, I was totally, I didn't know what to say. I, you're humbled, you're scared, you 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 don't want it, yeah. you don't want, and then you're thinking, what are the guys going to do? Yeah. What are my guys going to say? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, how much you know attention can one person get? The, the my soldiers were so selfless to just take this as theirs as well, mm-hmm. and that just speaks volumes about their character. I mean, this is not like they're not twenty anymore. Yeah, they're grown they're men grown too, men. Yeah. and they've got their own thing going. Yeah. They sacrificed their time. They came to Washington with me. I don't know of any, you know, I don't know of any other president or situation that will allow my entire platoon to come on stage. You know, the president was like, I said, hey, can I bring my guys up? And he's like, how many? And I was like, all of them. All of them. And he was like, but how many is that? And I was like, all of them? You know, like, I don't, I don't know the numbers. It was like 32, 33. They all came up. Wow. They all shared it with me. They, yeah. they, they loved and supported me. And it was, it shows a tremendous amount about these men. You know, I had my interpreter there that just became a U.S. citizen. Yeah, I, that's all I, that, you know, yeah. I had families of, of my sergeant major, my company commander. Yeah. You know, all these guys, all these fam- gold star families, they lost yeah. their husbands yeah. and sons. And they're up there. And, it, you know, it's impossible not to feel just overwhelmingly grateful to be around such outstanding folks as Alpha Company, 2-2, First ID. Those guys are, uh, are really awesome, yeah. and I appreciate that. Mm. So, clearly... You're in a world where your schedule and you're down here in Georgia. I think you've got a, you know, Monday at 8 a.m. till Friday, probably at 8 p.m. You're booked. Folks want to want to hear from you, right? They want to talk with you. They want to shake your hand. They want to glean, uh, glean your insight just like we do. Um, before that, you know, we were talking in the warm-up conversation about, um, you know, uh, veteran transition challenges. We heard some about your transitioning. If you had a couple of thoughts to share with uh, civilian hiring managers, folks that really want to you know tap into the um, incredible talent pipeline that is veterans that are exiting and and, and I think you were talking last night about how great of a resource veterans on your team can be what advice would you have to that hiring manager in terms of leaning in and really trying to understand and engage veterans to hire them well, I mean, the first thing is, is that we don't, you know, just because you're hiring a veteran doesn't mean you need to know what their story is. It's really none of your business what their mm. story is. If they want to mm. share it with you, that's great, but that's not a part of the job. Um, so, you know, knowing that someone served, you there's a whole lot you're finding out in the in the subtext that you don't really have to, you know, this is a person that understands what commander's intent is. Yeah. What am I supposed to do? They're going to do it. Uh, they're going to show up on time. They're going to be reliable. They're going to be accountable. But, you know, the other thing is that we do ourselves the most disservice because we feel like we have to, you know, I remember going to my first job and everyone's like, slow down. 
Like, listen, they, they, when, when we're, we're done with this job, we're all out of work here. So there's no reason why you need to, you know, no one's getting overtime, but, you know, like, just pump the brakes there, buddy. And, and, and it's true. I mean, you, you got to go with the flow, and you're an individual in a team just like you were in the military. Mm. And you're not in charge, yep. and and you'll work your way up, and eventually you'll get that responsibility. But when you come in, you know a lot of guys are you know sergeant first class, they're platoon sergeants, and they start, and they're basically a private in a new company, and that, that's a bit of an adjustment. Yep. Uh, and not everyone's up to your speed. Not everyone understands what you're trying to do. So we 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 have to gauge our own expectations. And, and again, nobody wants to hear the the the, the story of. You know, your buddy, mm. nobody needs to know about, you know, you, you choose the when and where in which you want to share mm. things with people. But by and large, civilians don't get it. They won't mm. understand they don't. it. They don't. And, and quite frankly, they don't want to, mm. you know, so why are we the ones that are, you know, instructing folks on what it's like to do close quarter, mm. you know, anything, mm. do your job, keep that stuff out there i mean don't wear your service on your on your sleeve you know because it really sets expectations and honestly it feeds to a lot of people that have prejudice mm. that you know we're knuckle draggers and we're mouth breathers and and that somehow you know so so my point is is that if they find out on the third or fourth conversation you serve great if you get a job and they find out you're a veteran, that's really all you need to say. Mm. Uh, what you're comfortable sharing, do that on your own time. But be aware that not everyone sees combat the same. Mm. Not everyone sees service the yeah. same. And, and you know, the job is important. Yeah, yeah that's reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It definitely is reality. And, and, and to hiring managers, I'm hearing, don't feel obligated to understand every single chapter of their service, right? And certainly don't put your veteran in a position where just because they served or just because they saw something that was horrible or mm. ruined a bad spot, that they're going to snap, mm. that they're going to be a threat. Yeah. Uh, yep. These Nothing makes your organization better than veterans. Nothing makes your community better than veterans. These are people that basically said... This cause and this country is more important than me. Why wouldn't you want that in your business? Mm. You want people that go to work for the business, not to go to work for the the individual or go to work for themselves. These are people that have constantly, every single day, said the mission is more important than me, yeah. and I'll do whatever I can to achieve the mission. I, I, I would I would want a whole company of veterans. Oh yeah, I, I, we, I can tell you from the Fortune 500 companies, we're we're not hiring. Be uh, veterans because it makes us feel good, or the the, the put on our end of year report. Right, right. We're hiring veterans because it makes us better. Yeah, right? return. And, uh, yeah, definitely. All right, so uh, busy schedule, and we love it. Uh, you know, I think uh, I love how you're an ambassador for so many things that folks need to hear about. I loved last night how you talked a lot about unity. And, you know, because these messages that bring folks together, we need to hear a lot more about that. You know, we can all have our differences and and have respectful debate and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we've got to come together. So um, tell us more about, you know, kind of the crazy schedule you've had this year and then give us a sneak peek into what 2020 holds. I I, I was recently in Texas where these – X game bicyclist BMXers like wanted to jump over my head. <laughs> I thought like, why? What, what the hell has happened here? That this is now important to the army. That we're like, you know, would really help recruiting. Could you jump over that man's head? That'd be awesome, you know. And uh, but but these guys were great. And you get you know you throw a first pitch out at a. I, I did a playoff game for 
you know, Nationals, Dodgers, and mm. Yankees, Mets, and you go to football. St- that part, you know, as a sports guy, that's cool. That's yeah. awesome. But what's really cool is I get to bring my guys with me. So, you know, Hardaway was catching the first pitch, really? which was really <laughs> awesome. That's cool. And I brought my guy, you know, so I'm bringing them to the Armed Forces Bowl in Dallas. I got a couple buddies going to that. Um, you know, my kids get to go. It's just that stuff's cool to be able to share that, going to Atlanta, seeing guys mm. you can hang out with and stuff. But for the most part, the 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 awkwardness of, you know, we don't have, a, we have one living recipient from the Iraq war. And honestly, I think that's shameful. I mean, I you know, I, those guys that I've gotten to know from Afghanistan are literally some of the greatest Americans who've ever lived. Mm. Sal Gianta and Leroy Petrie and, you know, all the Ryan Pitts, uh, you know, um, uh, Clinton Romaje, uh, all of them. They're all studs, every single one of them. Flo, uh, Groberg, he's, and they're my friends now. They're my bro- I love yeah. these guys, and mm. I'm so proud of who they are, and I'm proud to be in their association. But I'm not going to tell you that Afghanistan is 17 times more dangerous than Iraq was. And I'm not going to tell you that some of these guys living today from the Iraq war aren't worthy of this award. And we have to do a much better job of recognizing that valor. Mm. We have to do a much better job of putting the Iraq veteran on the same platform as the Afghanistan veteran. And it is extremely, un, you know, just awkward and weird to be the only guy walking around with this thing and now you know every not everyone wants to you know talk about iraq and a lot of times you know i'll be in a at a banquet and they'll say medal of honor guy and everyone's like oh you know firecrackers this is so great and there's like five gold star families right there Mm. those gold stars have given far more than anything mm. that any living recipient is wearing this thing. Yep. They gave their sons and their daughters. Yep. If you see a gold star family, we should, they should be walking on our backs. They should literally be the most celebrated citizen that we have. Anyone who's given anything of uh, life and their children and their husbands and their futures, their tomorrows were sacrificed so we could be undisturbed from comfort. Mm. That is the most incredible citizen. It's the most amazing gift we can be given. So I, as much as I'm, this is incredible, these other guys are literally walking embodiments of American patriotism, those gold stars are 10 times greater than anything, any award you can get, and they deserve that respect. Yeah. Mm, definitely. Well put. Well put. I wish we had you for six more hours. I hate that we're <laughs> kind of winding the interview down. Uh, Lloyd, I know you got some folks to thank. First of all, thank you. So the uh, you know uh, you are first choice the uh, the come to Atlanta. So you probably all know that, and and I, I'm I'm happy that you are first choice. You're the definition of servant leader, mm. and and the, uh, if you look at Atlanta, we're ran by servant leaders. So the uh, so I appreciate it. The, um, Thank you to you. <laughs> thank you for your service. <laughs> You're worth it. You're worth, You're worth it. it. There you go. The, uh, for the for the great uh, the talk last night at the uh, Atlanta. I also want to recognize your team. So the uh, I, I talked about them a little bit uh, when I first met you. They they did a great job, Ross and, and Tracy and Dresden. Thanks. They were a pleasure to work with. Uh, also, got to thank the Congressional Medal of Honor Foundation. Mm-hmm. And a uh, you know the um, Atlanta is all about collaboration. And and one of our biggest supporters here is not in money because Vetlanda doesn't take any money, but but in connections and, and support is the Arthur Blank Foundation. Mm. And the Arthur Blank Foundation actually um, 
gave the Congressional Medal of Honor Foundation a grant and then introduced them to Atlanta mm. and said, hey, hey, how can the three of you uh, work together to help veterans? And, and, and you're it. Mm. So the uh, so I, I appreciate a, uh, those great organizations. And it was the uh, end of a, a, a great year for us at Atlanta. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, a lot of folks have no idea of just how involved Arthur Blank and all of his organizations are in supporting a wide variety of community service initiatives and veterans initiatives. So we're lucky here in the metro Atlanta area to have folks like that and leaders like that that are doing things and are uh, taking action and, and writing big checks to support great causes. So big thanks to that. All right, so Lloyd, what's coming up for in 2020 for Vetlanta? Wow, we we have so many good things going on. We're adding capabilities uh, to the organization, which we talked about last night. We're getting involved in the veteran judicial system. Mm. So the veteran courts, we we've added that capability. Veteran arts. So we had we added a, a, a hip hop artist a, a, to the leadership team, uh, Mick Doc Todd. Really? And a, yeah, so we're we're looking to get involved in in the arts this the uh, this year. Uh, more um, interaction with the VA to, to make the VA uh, better and to help veterans better. Uh, great summits coming up. We have a uh, our first quarter summits at Fiserv. Second one's going to be at KPMG. Third one is UPS, and the fourth one JP Morgan to Chase. Mm. And then finally, we, we have our version of TED Talks, mm. and a, uh, we, we had the first one a. Uh, uh, right before Veterans Day, and it was a huge success. So we're looking at repeating that uh, two or three times uh, uh, next year. Mm. So lots of great things. Ton of great stuff. And this 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 marks the last episode of the Vetland Voice series for 2019. And I can't imagine a better uh, uh, guest that, to finish this first uh, season on than uh, David Bellavia. Uh, honored to have you. Really enjoyed what you shared. Uh, it comes from, you can just tell genuine folks when it's coming from the heart. Uh, I saw it last night, see it again here today, and w- just we admire you and admire thank what you've done. So um, I won't say thank you for your service, cause I, I li- although I like your response. Uh, <laughs> and so if you, listeners, you may have heard uh, what David just said to Lloyd, as Lloyd said, thank you for your service. Your common response is you're worth it. Well, that's a Vietnam thing. All my wisdom comes from our Vietnam mm. vets and everything they've done for us, protecting us from what mm. they went through. But yeah, some Vietnam vet told me he's like, "Hey, because it's weird when someone <laughs> thanks you for years. What are you supposed to be like? You know, I had time. You know, just, he stick. Yeah, this, this machine gun's not shooting itself. Like, I'll do it. But so yeah, no, I mean, you're worth it is a is a really cool way to just say this is why we do what we do mm, because you mm. you're worth it. Our families are worth it. America's worth it. So mm. cool. Honor to be uh, with you here today. Thanks, Thanks so much, uh, Lloyd. Where can folks uh, cite the? Uh, where can folks learn more about Vetlanta? Yeah, vetlanta.org. Perfect. Check us out. Sign up for a uh, newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter. We're not going to ask you for money. We're just going to let you know how we're helping veterans. Love it. Love it. Honored to be part of that too. All right. So we're going to wrap up today. Our schedule isn't nearly as busy as David's, but uh, we're going to be in a few places here as 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 we get past the holidays and get kicked into January. As always, we invite our listeners to come check us out in person. Um, we're going to be uh, at events for CSCMP Atlanta Roundtable in January. The Reverse Logistics Association Conference and Expo out in Vegas in February. Uh, and then, of course, Modex, one of the largest supply chain trade shows in the Western Hemisphere, as Ben Harris with the Chamber likes to say, is going to be back in Atlanta March 9th through the 12th. We're going to be streaming throughout those four days of that conference. And, of course, Modex is hosting our 2020 Atlanta Supply Chain Awards March 10th, where we're going to be featuring Christian Fisher, President and CEO of Georgia Pacific, as our keynote. You can learn more 
uh, you, you can hear learn more about any of these uh, these events uh, that we're going to be at at our events tab at supplychainnowradio.com. Uh, Modex in particular is free to attend. Yeah. Thirty five thousand folks networking, uh, market intel, best practices, keynotes, you name it. Modexshow.com and the Atlanta Supply Chain Awards nominations, registration, sponsorships all open. Atlanta Supply Chain Awards. Dot com. Uh, big thanks once again to Medal of Honor recipient David uh, Bellavia. Thanks so much. Safe travels. Headed back to uh, Buffalo later this week. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Lloyd, a pleasure. Thanks, this has God. been a great six episodes and looking forward to what 2020 has in store. Thank you. Appreciate your leadership. Okay, to our listeners, be sure to check out other upcoming events, replays of our interviews, other resources at supplychainnowradio.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, where all the leading sites where you find your podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Uh, here on behalf of our entire team, Scott Luton wishing you a wonderful week ahead, and we will see you next time on Spot Radio. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.